0: I'm starting that now, okay. Um, yeah, I wanna be respectful of your time. So I think we'll just jump in and people can join as they as they can. Okay, great. So I would love it if you could just introduce yourself uh, to the group and let us know kind of, well, who you are and then how you, and why you wrote this book.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Anu, Anu Taranath, and um, I wrote this book, because I couldn't not, (laughs) that's the easiest way to describe it. Um, I I do lots of different things. Uh, I've been a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle for, this is now coming up on 20 years. And before that I was teaching at another university for a long time. So I've had about 26, 27 years of teaching experience. And I'm always teaching about race and power and identity and global north, global south uh, relations. And I've been doing study abroad, international education work for about 15, 16 years as well. Uh, I myself am bicultural and think about what it means to be who I am in the world in different places and at different moments <clears throat> and how that looks sometimes really different than the people that I'm with based on who they are and how they present and all that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And this book is the uh, uh, product of thousands of conversations that I was having outside of class, outside of programs, certainly in class and in programs, but also students who I don't know coming into office hours saying, how is it that I was just in Peru for a month or two or four months and we never talked about race? How is it that everyone is celebrating global citizenship, but nobody really talks about the ethics of what we're actually doing, sending this many mostly white kids out and about. There's got to be some politics to that around race and colonialism and identity. Or how do you talk about work without falling into the guilt trip of, oh, I have more, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do a lot of racial equity consulting um, with our city, our county, and all kinds of big and small organizations. And so I'm constantly <clears throat> helping people navigate uh, these questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just had to write. I didn't know what I was writing a couple of years ago when I started. Uh, there were just things out at the top of my head that just had to come out. And so I always laugh that My kids were small at the time. And so um, in seven minute chunks is what I got those first uh, year, year and a half of writing. I would have seven minutes and I would just start writing and see what came up.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then at some point sort of looked at all my seven minute chunk writings and thought, I I think something big is here. I I think I can put this together in a way that I can share with others because there's got to be many more people that are also hungry for productive, thoughtful, nuanced, but also no-nonsense conversations about some of this. Uh, And that's why I had to write the book.
0: I had to. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm so thankful that you did because I've been living abroad for almost 18 years. And so we've been a part of a lot of different organizations and orientations and trainings. and, And I would say the same thing, never had a conversation about race or power and identity um, other than the idea of the white savior complex, but not this idea of the complex feelings that we have or the complicated experiences that we encounter And so I feel like I haven't had language to put to those experiences until reading this book. It was just so helpful. That's um, the
1: best compliment, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm so curious to see who else is here and what has drawn you, is it appropriate to, ask folks to just give a brief introduction do you want to stop the recording or is it okay to have that recorded
0: no i think we can record it yeah i would love that okay. so just um, let me unmute you all and then one by one maybe share if you'd like who you are where you're at
1: and we're a small intimate group if you're able to put your camera on that would be even better absolutely <laughs>
2: all right I'll start thank you you can tell from my name which is in can it's barb that I am related to Rachel so I'm Rachel's mom and of course whatever she's interested in I am also interested in and she has helped me to grow a lot in cross-cultural and ministries and what it all means so Mm. what do you
1: have to say right on mama good good Uh, hmm.
3: Okay, I'm Steffi. I'm from Germany. I've lived in Chad for the past nine years. So Central Africa. I haven't actually read your book yet. But um, I listened to a conversation you had with someone that Rachel linked to on her Facebook page. I think it was the NPR website or something. So I listened to that today. And yeah, this whole idea of, you know, global inequalities and living abroad as white expats, obviously, is something We think about a lot if we Mm. live overseas. Mm. Thank you.
1: Hi,
3: I'll go next. I'm
2: Josie. Um, I, uh, let's see, we lived in Chad also for about five years. I've been back in the States for
3: three. Um, And these are
2: also questions that I've with, you know, that have been like brewing in the background for a long time and being back in our home culture has really given me time to process and like pull some of the things to this. So, um, yeah, I'm really thankful for, I haven't finished the book yet, but for what I've read so far and how that's just contributing to the conversation that was already in my head and helping to inform that um, even better as we're actually preparing to move back abroad um,
1: hopefully in January. We're not exactly sure. Um, We'll see.
2: I may take my video
3: off because it's a little distracting. <laughs> with this. We'll see how she does.
1: Yeah, I like what you say that, you know, it takes time for us to process so much of this, mm-hmm. right? It's not about just being somewhere and being able to know right then and there how to navigate it. Uh, so much of at least my own wisdom around this and my deepening wisdom around this, I should say, is sometimes takes place years after the actual thing has happened. Or the
2: actual interaction,
3: right?
1: That's that's a good that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Hi, mm-hmm.
2: Like um, my name is Stephanie, and I'm not going to go on video. I've got kids and work uh, in this oh. COVID environment <laughs> that are bouncing around. But I do um, domestic work when my husband travels internationally. He's worked for um, a number of international. Uh, organizations, does a lot of work in Africa, um, and it's just something that we're constantly talking about. We met in Kenya um, several years ago, and um, we talk about race a lot in the United States, where I do work um, in advocacy and policy, and um, it's just uh, super relevant ever like, every day <laughs> um, in our context, mm-hmm. and um, he works globally, so we're just constantly talking about this um,
1: as it intersects their lives. Great. Thanks for coming.
3: Thank you. My name is Susan. I'm a colleague of Rachel's um, at an NGO in Djibouti. We have several education projects. So I primarily work at the International School of Djibouti. And I have uh, lived and traveled and studied abroad in a number of different countries. And regions mostly latin america um, but i was in india for a year and now i'm here in east africa um, and i've worked a lot with refugees and immigrants in the states too and so a lot of the themes in this book are similar to what many of you have already expressed things i've been grappling with mostly internally and also in some conversations with friends and colleagues and classmates and um, I will admit I have not yet read the book. It is on my, my uh, mental bookshelf um, but I wanted to get in on this conversation. I was so excited to hear that um, you were able to speak with us this evening so, and I'm also going to leave my camera off because I'm in a crowded coffee shop and I think it would be a bit distracting to have it on. So Fine,
1: fine, thank you.
3: You're
1: welcome. Anybody else want to do an intro? All right, Rachel, we can continue.
0: All right. All right.
1: Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks.
0: Absolutely. I Like I said before, I just love the broad spectrum that people bring of experience and background to this conversation. Um, I feel like some of the because the emotions that come up with some of the experiences that we have with race abroad are really complicated it can just be painful and so the conversations that come out of it are really hard and so in the book you share a story of you and your friend traveling together in brazil and even being there for quite a while and how eventually the different things you were experiencing in terms of your skin color really came to a head and cause some tension. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that and then especially how you process that without destroying the relationship. I think that's really important to understand. Yeah,
1: great question. Um, <clears throat> that was a really hard story to write, first of all. Uh, it was a hard story to write because it was a hard story to heal and um, writing about what we are raw about has a lot of power, but writing about what we are raw about makes it hard to see the nuance in everything, right? And so trying to think about how do I stay honest to my own experience at the moment, but also know mine was just one of many other experiences that were taking place at the same time. Uh, took me some time to go deep, go truthful, and to try to figure that out. So it was really hard to write. Um, It was also challenging to write because the friend that I write about, she and I are very good friends still for, uh, you know, now how many years has it been? 24 years. We have been uh, good friends and good friends who have really different experiences in the world. Very different experiences, right? And so trying to figure out how to talk about race and power and history and identity when it's playing out literally in front of us, day in and day out, while we were walking the streets of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Um, And then, but not having language to talk about it, right? And having all of those tangled up feelings that emerge. Wait, who's getting attention? What does attention actually mean? Do we want racialized attention? Why do we feel Left out? What does belonging actually mean? How does history play out in all of this? Can we be friends if we have such different experiences? This is what happens in the US all the time. No, it's not what happens in the US all the time. Like, duck, 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 duck. duck. I mean, there's so many layers to it. Uh, So, yeah, it was really hard to write, hard to process. It took us some time to heal from it uh, for about some time after that experience, we were both kind of tender and nursing our really different wounds around what had happened, Um, but also knowing we love each other, we want camaraderie between us, we didn't make race, we didn't make racism, we didn't create colonialism, we are living in a very unequal world very differently, That that is true. But our love and commitment to each other needs to be first and foremost. And what does that mean? It means open dialogue. It means knowing that I'm only partially right and that she also is partially right. That takes a lot of ego work on our own to be in integrity with ourselves to know, I know lots, but it's only this much, really. I only know this much. The more I learn, the more wisdom I supposedly get. Actually, the, the thing that I thought I knew is even less and less and less. And that uh, that truth, I think, seems so counterintuitive. Uh, but I think it's the exact humility you need to really heal from racial wounds, right? Racial wounds are deep. And it affects us all really differently. And unless you have that humility to realize that what I know matters, and what I know is only partial, <clears throat> uh, that seemed really critical for my friend and I to come together. Uh, earlier before COVID, I was, on, I was traveling the US on book tour and I went to the city where my friend is. Uh, and so we had a wonderful reading where I read part of that story with her right there. And it was such a beautiful kind of full circle moment to know that as younger people, we had had these experiences. And here we are both teachers of this kind of complex material um, it was very beautiful.
0: Wow, I love that. I wrote down actually four points I took from what you just said. Um, oh. I love and commitment to the relationship seem primary. The willingness to have open dialogue, to understand that I'm partially right, and that that part matters, but not fully right, and then yeah. that ego work of humility. I feel like those... <laughs> That is what we need right now. Yeah. Um, not just. And that is
1: what we are so not taught ever, right?
0: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Someone just wrote a message. I'm looking at the chat here. Um, asked if she could jump in with questions. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah. I wasn't sure if we could just jump in. Um, oh. I was sharing that I work domestically, and I just would. Um, you know, I'm curious to hear you. speak talk about these issues in the context of today and just how I feel like the conversation on race in the United States is changing every day. And um, I mean, just, I guess, to the comments and points that you just made about humility and um, even having a relationship and knowing that you don't have all the right answers, like all those things are things that we don't have right now. And I would just love to hear you speak about that. Like how, how, I don't know, how do we do this in today's context, and how do you start to do that on a society level, Um, because it's hard enough to do it even in one relationship, even like with a spouse,
0: Um,
2: but then how do you do that, um, you know, at a a society level, so I I guess I'm asking like a hundred questions in one comment, (laughs) but I would just love to hear you speak about it, you know. See if your thoughts have changed in today's world as we're talking about race, um, how that's impacted conversation about race globally. Yeah, Um, yeah. Uh, asking 100 questions, sorry.
1: We'll we'll need to be in conversation until next Tuesday, (laughs) at least, to begin to unpack some of what you're asking. Uh, But uh, let me just share a little bit of what comes up as I hear your many prompts together. Um, So, you know, I, I do this global work, Um, But I also do lots of racial equity work within the U.S. And I think um, the combination of me having both of those lenses present uh, in all of my work has been really, sometimes really confusing, confusing, but also really clarifying also. Because I often talk about how, uh, you know, my, my work is a study in how power works. And power power works similarly across the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It works so similarly. People who have power are least to recognize it. People who have power are loath to give it up. People who have power uh, develop senses of entitlement around it, and it becomes normalized. It becomes part of the ways that history gets told. It becomes a feature of learning how to otherize somebody else and to make somebody else different than you. And all of that is seeming, it seems so natural because it's all around us and it's embedded into all of our institutions. And so I think again, working domestically as well as globally, I've been able to, in my own mind over the last many years, compare and contrast how power works across cultural spaces, across colonial spaces, across geographical spaces, and it's kind of similar in some ways, right? So I take a lot of lessons uh, from say my work in Ghana into racial equity work here in the Northwest United States. Um, I, I take so much of what I've learned from rural women's organizing in India uh, and bring it into my classrooms. I take insights from big corporations that I work with, like say Amazon or something big and take some of those insights into my work in Mexico. So I'm always doing a lot of kind of cross-comparative cross, cross comparative work. Um, and because power works similarly, but also really differently, right? It works differently as well. Uh, I think that nuance has helped me navigate this particular moment in the US uh, with a a bit of a wider scope. You know, the last six, seven months of increased uprising around Black Lives Matter and what it means both domestically and globally and how it's been portrayed in the media and the mobilization of people on the streets, in our homes, in our communities, um, especially under COVID. All of that is, uh, it's astonishingly important. It's so important. It is also though, one of many, many uprisings and agitations and activism that people have been involved in, both domestically as well as globally. And so I think I come into this work kind of again, knowing how special it is, but also how ordinary it is. People all over the world are thinking about how power works in their context, and people all over the world throughout history have thought about what it means to make life better for more of us. And sometimes we do it in really small, quiet ways that you can't see. And sometimes you do it in big, big, thousands of people on the street ways, right? And so I guess, I guess I'm saying this moment in the US is really important. It's also like lots and lots of other moments. It's both at the same time. And and by trying to hold both, I'm not diminishing the importance of it. I'm trying to put it into a larger context. I know that as a facilitator, my work in this region has shifted a lot since the 2016 election here in the US uh, with this president. Um, And, you know, uh, I'm in a predominantly white neighborhood uh, here in the Pacific Northwest and lots of well-intentioned whites suddenly realized oh my god we elected him people like me white women elected him and that was a that's a moment of reckoning right it's a moment of reckoning to have to think about who your people are and what racial fears trigger not just our voting patterns but what racial fears trigger our sense of ourselves and others. None of that is easy. It's all messy, super messy. And so my consulting work started to look really different in 2016. And I think these last six, seven months, my consulting work has looked really different. Um, I also come to this work thinking about our woundedness. How do you live in such a unequal world and not take in the woundedness. White folks have a particular wound to have to think through that is very different than the wound that people of color have had to navigate. Right. But healing for me, isn't some kind of squishy yoga sort of thing. Healing is really about having more honesty and integrity about what has brought us here? How does that play out in our lives? What feelings arise arise in us, and how do we hear each other across our experiences? And that means learning how to uh, prioritize vulnerability. I think in a really important way. Again, that we haven't been we haven't really been taught how to do any of this work at all. We are taught how to have a lot of armor. We are taught how to like think only about what other people are imagining about us. We've got lots of noise in our head about how people view us, and uh, am I as pretty as her, or am I as thin as X, or do I have enough wealth as well? We are taught in that, mostly. We have so few models of trying to think about what does it mean to be in integrity with myself? To be in integrity with an unfair and unjust history. And how do I stay in integrity with myself in an unfair and unjust present? That's what so much of my work is uh, trying to create some space for. And lots of folks aren't quite even sure what that is, right? Um, it's kind of a, a, maybe a different way to approach history and harm, um, but it feels to me the most authentic uh, and holistic way to do so. Stephanie, I'm not sure if I answered Uh, many of your questions, but that was just some of what came up.
2: Yeah, no, I have like so many, I think it just prompts (laughs) so many other questions. I'll say like, I started laughing when you were talking about how it's important, but also not important because of course, like, you know, uh, I think it's super important (laughs) and like the most important because I'm here in America and so it's mine. Right. But it's so helpful to just contextualize it within what the entire globe is going through and saying, yeah, important, but these other things are also important. So I, I do only laughing because it's like a check on myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, and my, I was saying my husband travels internationally. He has also has a very different upbringing and he's constantly reminding me like, yes. And this is the experience of, you know, other people or um, you know, for him growing up really in uh the, in poverty like pretty extreme poverty so just like how you respond to different things whether you come from a place of wealth or less mm-hmm. you know resources and just like constantly getting that check on your own lens that needs to be taken off your eyes you know mm-hmm. to better understand what's going on so yeah, yeah i think it was uh, great um
1: it's like I said uh, sorry to interrupt uh, it's like i said earlier right our experience matters, and it is
0: just—it's mm-hmm.
1: right. just one of many.
0: Yeah. And
1: at least in the West, w- we have an overinflated sense of our experience matters mm-hmm. more than anybody else's. Is sort of how we are implicitly brought up in this, right. in this particular culture, right? And so, how do you, act, uh, for me, the humility of knowing that my story is just but one of many is actually strengthening my sense of self. It's not a diminishment of myself, it's actually a strengthening of myself to know that I'm in community with many, many others. Uh, but again, we don't we, we don't have many models of that and we're not quite taught that in many ways. It seems so counterintuitive,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, when you talk about healing and some of the work that you've done, how it's changed from 2016 and then even in the last six or seven months, Do you find, um, are people responsive to the kind of consulting that you're offering? Is there, do you feel hope, I guess, is maybe that's a naive question even, but um, do you sense a forward momentum? Hmm.
1: Sometimes I'm not sure what hope is,
0: Hmm.
1: right? I I think uh, we have a sense Or I often have a sense that hope means that things will get better. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And sometimes it's really difficult to see that when things seem really not like that. Um, So I'm trying to find some new language to talk about hope these days. I think for me, a word that resonates even more than hope is how do I be nimble, nimble, Mm -hmm. right? Um, none of us can ever really control all that is in front of us. All kinds of things happen. Good stuff, bad stuff, everything in between. Mm -hmm. And you can't really control some of that. Some of it you maybe control, but lots of things you can't control. And so nimbleness for me is my ability to do more responding to what's in front of me and less reacting, right? To have a little bit more a sense of presence, sense of breath, space, being here in the now, not getting too caught up in all those stories that we're telling, but you know, being able to say, okay, this is happening in front of me. How do I respond well? What does that mean? That ability to be nimble, and the opposite of being nimble is being rigid, right? And so I think like trying to figure out how to be nimble as a society, that seems to me a really important skill to cultivate hope, right? The more nimbleness I have in me, the less I am floored by every new thing that happens outside of my very carefully constructed predictive model of my life should be like this. And the more wedded we are to my life should look like this, uh, the less nimbleness we have to when our life doesn't look like that, because it rarely does look like that image that we had, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so that nimbleness feels like a really important muscle for us to exercise, cultivate, strengthen on our own, but also in terms of our communities. Again, we don't do that very well. We have very, really fixed understandings. It should look like this. And when it doesn't look like this, we collapse. And so are there other ways to navigate that? That that to me is hope, right? I don't, you know, I don't know what will happen in this next election. I'm not sure, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of unknowns, right? Lots is going on in my little context, but all around the globe, there's a lot of unknowns. So cultivating nimbleness, feels to me like a really important skill.
0: And it seems really practical. Like In the book, you talk about that sense of grounding yourself. And, and like you said, being in the now, and breathing, and just paying attention to what is right here. And that also is just so helpful, because we can't control what's going to happen next. Um, and so the nimbleness combined with the sense of responsiveness to right now instead of yeah. in some idea of control, that's that's really helpful. And um, if somehow we can do that, individually and make that real. Maybe it could expand into community and larger than just the response to things. Right, right. Um, I would love to hear if anyone else has questions that you'd like to jump in. I've got a bunch. But if anyone else has one, throw it out there. Go ahead, you can ask Rachel. All right. Um, so. Let's see, I wanna pick out some of the highlighted ones. Well, one thing, one really interesting question that came from a woman who's been part of the book club and has read the whole book, but she's not able to participate tonight. She's a mother of young kids and she's living in the US in a fairly homogenous environment, white. And um, so she was asking if you had suggestions for how to help our kids have conversations about this or um, deal with the feelings that they experience. just how to equip them better than we've been
1: equipped. I'm asked this a lot. uh, And my response is, it seems counterintuitive to many of the people who ask it, right? Because they are looking for specific tips about their kids and I always start with them. And I say part of learning how to speak better with your families and communities about race and power and identity and privilege and advantage and harm and all of that is learning how to talk better about it with yourself and with others like you. That's the first step. Uh, I hear from lots of almost all white people who have had so little practice Mm -hmm. talking about any of these issues with themselves or with other white people. And they want like a 10 step program on how to inoculate their children from racism. And that's not quite possible, right? That's not, I wish I had that 10 step program. Um, That's not really possible. So I always think of it as like when you're in an airplane and then they ask you to put your own oxygen mask on first before you assist those around you. That's uh, That's such a helpful image for me to think about some of this work. If you yourself have had very little conversation and opportunity to practice, why do you think suddenly your child would be any better. Um, Just because you bring a book with a black or brown character in it every now and then from the library, that's, I mean, come on, that's not going to do much. Right. It's good. I mean, there should be lots more books with all kinds of children in it. Yes. And that's not going to really do much if you yourself have not really investigated and explored some of your own discomfort and silence and complicity in some of these broader concepts. So that oxygen mask, you know, on a parent can look like doing some readings, right? Of course, it means hopefully not just doing reading on our own, but coming into community and talking about it. Um, You know, I want my book to be read with groups of people uh, and have those, that's why I've written all those questions in between. So people can have some some threads to, uh, threads of connection with each other. So they can talk to one another as they are reading it, because that kind of work is where we are oxygenating ourselves. And only when we are oxygenated, are we able to then sort of look at our three-year-old, our white three-year-old who's growing up in an all-white community, and to say, so maybe there's not a lot of people who don't look like us here, and to feel okay saying that, and to not be mired in our own guilt and shame and unpracticedness about it, because kids pick up on every nuance of ours. And so your words might be right, but the tone in which you say it, they hear it. They totally hear it. And they know, oh, mama's feeling awkward. Oh, I should never bring this up again. Oh, mama's feeling this, mama's feeling that. My dad said this, Uncle Bill said that. They they get it. So we are taught silences in a range of ways. Right, So that one library book is not gonna do much if we ourselves as parents aren't quite sure what that oxygen mask looks like for us.
0: Right? Yeah, that's so, again, just really helpful. like Because we are, I'm from a Christian background, I'm a Christian, I'm living in a Muslim country. So religion has been very much on the, on the table of conversation with our kids. call to prayer, the month of fasting for Ramadan. It's things that we've talked about and we've talked about how these are really beautiful practices that our neighbors engage in but and part of my background enabled those conversations but again I don't have a lot of experience or practice talking about race even though we're clearly white people in Africa you know that race is a factor, or an issue but very unpracticed in talking about it and so um, I think that that's one of the major reasons I chose this book for the book club because we need to and um, need to practice mm. so it's been it's been really helpful um, One of the things that I watched a real short YouTube clip of you speaking where you talked about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, mm. and the stories that are kind of out there around us in the world, whether it's history, politics, worldview kinds of kinds of stories, um, I wondered if you could share a little bit about how those stories impact the way that we live mm. in a sense, and how we can maybe change our stories to, to help us live differently.
1: Mm. I'm curious which YouTube thing you saw, I, meant, I don't know which one you did.
0: Uh, yeah, it was an intro to One Minute Long, I think, where you were talking about an upcoming seminar that you were giving about stories.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Um, Yeah, you know, um, I think trying to figure out how to be more honest about history and our present is being able to silence some of the noise in our minds. And without a lot of awareness, we have thousands of thoughts running through our minds all the time about ourselves and others. And lots of that is negative criticism. A lot of that is judgment. A lot of that is comparative. Lots of that is really unhelpful. And so to me trying to figure out like our stories is on a couple of different layers. One, it's what's happening in my mind all the time. Can I just be a bit more aware of that and then learn to silence that a little bit in a really gentle, friendly, open way, less with guilt and anger and shame, because that just gives it more negative charge. But with real friendliness, oh yeah, I I, I see you stories. (laughs) I see you. You're trying to distract me from right now being here. I see you, but just hold on. Like that kind of friendliness, I, I think clarifies for ourselves how loud our minds are. So I think that's one level of trying to think about what stories we're telling. If my if the stories that are so loud in my mind are about how inadequate I am and how much less what pretty wealthy erudite whatever I am compared to somebody else or all of that, it's really hard to get into integrity with yourself. It's really hard. So first is thinking about what stories are already being told and how can I pay a little bit more attention to that? One, I think another way that our storytelling really matters is to pay close attention to what's coming up for us when we are engaged in uncomfortable moments, right? Discomfort is uncomfortable and we are so practiced at swiping away that discomfort immediately, like literally on a phone swiping it away but also in our imaginations, in our minds. Any time there's discomfort, we rush to fix it. We rush to change it. And we do a range of things to ensure that we don't feel uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is not the same as being unsafe. Those are two really different things for me, right? I don't uh, wish for anybody to feel unsafe. And if you are feeling unsafe, do whatever you can to get safety, that's, that's there. But feeling uncomfortable can be really good for us. We have all this negative connotation around it, but being uncomfortable around others, around ourselves, around honesty, around our advantages, around the history that we play a part in, around our complicity in bigger structures, around our confusion, I think having more honesty about our discomfort can actually bring about a lot of wisdom. And so that's another level of paying close attention to the stories that we're telling, right? Oh, it's bad. Oh, I feel uncomfy. Okay, that's all right. Nothing will happen if you're feeling uncomfortable for a few moments. You'll be fine. There's life after discomfort, right? This is the kind of coaching that I feel like I'm doing a lot with certainly my students, but with you know, all kinds of people, there's life after discomfort. Discomfort will not break us. Again, that's different than being unsafe, right? And so having some nuance in our language, I think can help us maybe, it's almost like we're repatterning ourselves. We're re- rewiring ourselves. I'm not saying I love feeling uncomfortable, but I also know that discomfort won't break me not break it won't break me I'll feel uncomfortable yeah yep and I'll need a cup of chai at the end of it yes but it's not going to break me and that that resilience that nimbleness that integrity that's so much about paying attention to again the stories that come up for us right mm-hmm. uh, my you know the work I do around racial equity uh, It's sort of about the larger institutions that we're a part of, but it's so much also about what comes up for us. Because we are operating on so many levels, the personal, the interpersonal, as well as the systemic, institutional. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and So how do we have some nuance and awareness of these many, many different layers that are happening at once? And so I think we're so cut off from ourselves, so, so cut off from ourselves and our feelings and our honesty and confusions and feelings, even in such a narcissistic society, even in a me, me, me society, we're so cut off. And so trying to, again, silence some of that noise, stay present with yourself, be okay with what comes up in a really friendly, open way, because if you try to push it down and repress it, it just, comes out in a different way, it doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> and so being open and friendly to what comes up, to our discomfort, knowing I'll be okay. Let me make that cup of chai right now for me so when I finish this moment, it'll be ready for me, <laughs> right? I'll be all right. Yes. I think all, so much of that is kind of, uh, it's like the mechanisms to get more in touch with your story, mm-hmm. right? partly about re, uh, uh, reconnecting with our own story and also silencing the stories that are not helpful. It's, it's, we're doing both, or we're trying to practice both.
3: I like yeah. what
2: you said about discomfort doesn't break us. Mm-hmm. I think we shy away from discomfort because we're afraid of it. It doesn't, yep. it doesn't feel good, but I like that. It doesn't break us. Yep.
0: Yep. Yeah, and no, again, a, we're that's still that's not taught
1: that, that right? We have so few models of that. What we see around us is anytime you feel a sense of even this much discomfort, you deserve to change the moment, right? You deserve that chocolate bar, you deserve that sex, you deserve the trip to the fridge, you deserve shopping trip, you deserve whatever. That's the messages that we receive. And so we have so little invitation to be, to, to kind of think, oh, I feel uncomfortable maybe that's okay maybe that's
0: okay right yeah maybe that's okay and maybe I can ask questions about why am I uncomfortable what is this stirring up and what can I learn from that all those kinds of things um, it's just immensely practical yes yes um, I feel like we're, we're coming down on our time a little bit but and I had last question of what's one takeaway that you would love to give to readers or people are part of this conversation and I feel like I mean, I just have a page full of notes already from what you said Half <laughs> top of all the notes I took on your book. Um, so I don't know how to, how to boil that down to one thing. But if you have something to share, like one final thought, we'd love to hear it. Um, and then maybe you could share also how people could find you online, if you'd like that. Um,
1: sure, yeah. Wow, well, distilling, one, <laughs> distilling one thought is certainly a challenging proposition. Yeah. Um,
0: You've certainly already given us many more than one. So whatever it is, it won't uh, diminish anything else that you've said.
1: I suppose um, maybe it's sort of what we were just talking about. You know, discomfort won't break you. Mm-hmm. Discomfort is there to sometimes signal something. How could we not be uncomfortable in an unequal world? If your heart is ringing for justice Let me just say differently, if you're fine with the the status quo and you love the fact that so many are suffering needlessly, then I'm not really talking to you. I'm not sure how to connect. So that's, that's that category. But if your hearts ring for more justice for more of us, how could we not have discomfort in an unequal world? Of course, of course, anytime you investigate issues of power and race and history and harm, you will feel uncomfortable, yes, because that is what an unequal world produces. It's uncomfortable, but not feeling that doesn't make life better for more of us. Those of us that have many more advantages, whether that is our skin, whether that is our, the institutions we're a part of, whether that's education, whether that's our socialization, whether that's our wealth, those of us with advantage, I think owe it to the sense of justice to be able to kind of cultivate that resilience, to be able to dip into conversations because it's only through conversations that life gets better for more people. If we are shuttered in our own closets of shame, that does nothing for others. It keeps us really back focused on ourselves it's narcissistic and it just rehearses the privileges over and over and over again but actual engagement doesn't necessarily mean I know how to fix everything I don't I don't but I know that talking together openly and honestly is the foundation for every kind of change that I know right and so I'm hoping that this book becomes part of that broader conversation, right? I would love uh, everyone's assistance on helping to share this. This book was, you know, I had, I mean, some of the journey of this book, I, I had sent it out to, I don't know, 35 different presses for publication. Nobody wanted it. Um, I was sort of at the end of my hopeful journey uh, after a long time of sending it out and out and out. Uh, And then this press in Toronto, in Canada, um, there's such a small little press of three people, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. they immediately wrote back the next day and said, oh, we totally get what you're doing, and we will take this to the editorial board next month in our meeting. And then I was immediately part of their small family. So it just felt like the right fit, but they are such a small press, they don't have much budget to Mm -hmm. share. And so the sharing is people who read it, uh, who are interested and excited about the book and what it offers, sharing it with your networks and community. Mm -hmm. And so in just a short year, uh, I'm just pretty astonished uh, that the book has kind of moved in different circles and that I'm even with you all today. Uh, Like The first question I asked Rachel when you reached out to me some months ago was, how did you even hear of the book? And I think you had said that somebody put it up on Facebook or something, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, now that I've read it a couple of times, I feel like it should be required reading for anybody studying abroad or going to work abroad, live abroad, travel. I hope so. So practical. Yeah. yeah. I, I,
1: I have written it to try to be as accessible as possible to a wide range of people mm-hmm. um, and to have it applicable for people working in development, study abroad students, global health, uh, expat. I mean, just a range of us who are in between trying to help, and not quite sure how to do so in an unequal world. And that's a lot of us,
3: Yeah, that's many yeah. of
1: us, yeah. So I would just love anybody's ideas over the next couple of weeks, uh, or you know, your uh, suggestions on how I can share this more widely. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I echo that. Anybody listening to this, absolutely share it where you can, it's yeah. worthwhile. Um, Um, I'm
1: putting putting in the chat my website that so anybody can take a look if you're interested. Uh, If you're also interested in some of my public events, especially now that things are online, Mm -hmm. uh, you're welcome to follow me on Instagram and you can learn a little bit more about that.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been really fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for writing the book and doing that work. Um, I have really benefited and I know others have too. So we really appreciate it.
1: Oh, great. I just so appreciate uh, everyone's time and uh, openness to be here today. Feel mm-hmm. free to
0: share it with folks. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yep, And even Oprah, it's on uh, Oprah's list, right? Of 26 travel books, um, amazing. Yes. So, well yeah.
1: done. And I just found out recently uh, that um, I'm in the state of Washington here uh, in the U.S and um, it was selected as a finalist for the Washington State Book Award. So what? that just feels so big. Uh, again, from a small press, a small press of three and a half people after 35 rejections, uh, it feels, feels really nice. Yeah.
0: Well, well-earned. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Lovely to be in conversation with you all today. Thank you. Yeah, well, have a nice day and uh, thank you everybody for joining.
1: Thanks. Fire Thank more. you. Thanks.